Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Uh, thanks for being part of the show today. We are launching into our uh, our new year here, and I'm just thinking, this is January 9th, I think. Oh, no, it must have been February. I'm trying to think of the first day that I started broadcasting in 1990, a different millennium. I think it was February 10th or something. I'll have to check that out. Not sure. But anyway, we're launched out here, and glad that you've joined me. Um, I have an article I want to start with here that is a li- was a little bit stunning for me to read, because um, I have been talking about how uh, evangelical accommodation to homosexuality in the Church is a kind of bellwether or a uh, watershed of sorts, a marker, historically, that uh, we're in deep trouble. Because, as I pointed out, along with a number of other controversial issues, there is no ambiguity here about what the Scripture teaches regarding this behavior or these kinds of relationships. In fact, it teaches against it so aggressively that it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that people who engage in these kinds of things, not just the sexual sin of homosexuality, but other sexual sin, which is, is in many cases, rampant in the Church today, uh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not in the kingdom. These practices are evidence that they're outside of the kingdom. And uh, so we've talked about that, been talking about it for decades, actually, because the the point needs to continue to be made because Christians are confused, and all around them there seem to be movements to affirm gay relationships. That's why it's called gay-affirming theology, for example. But I didn't expect anything to, like this to ever come from the Roman Catholic Church. And that seems to be what's happening here. Now, mind you, this I'm not suggesting there's a wholesale affirmation, but these things happen little by little. And it's like the camel, the proverbial camel, he gets his nose under the tent, and then little by little the whole camel's in the tent. And this is the way things happen on moral issues. Francis Schaeffer famously said that what was unthinkable yesterday is thinkable today and ordinary and commonplace tomorrow. And our appeal at Stand to Reason has always been for classical Christianity and classical Christian values, which entails sexual values that are wildly countercultural especially now. There was a time in our history where this wasn't the case, but in history in general, Christian ethics have been countercultural. It certainly was the case in the first century. So we, we, we should not be intimidated by cultural pressure to go along with a cultural idea, uh, because that's the way it's been for Christians forever on critical issues. We just are countercultural because the counter, the culture is not God's culture. The Church is God's culture, so to speak, but not the culture culture. And that's why it's been troublesome for me to watch this creep of this theological drift, so to speak, over the years, uh, where um, 
evangelicals, Protestantism writ large, have become more and more friendly to gay theology, gay-affirming theology. And here is the first step that I've seen now in the Roman Catholic Church in that direction. All right? So I'm going to read this piece by Cindy, uh, Cindy Wooden. Um, let me see if I have the... Oh, it's all printed out, but I don't have the source itself. But it's referring to a recent action by the Vatican to affirm a kind of blessing for same-sex couples. So, um, Vatican City, a Catholic priest can bless a gay or other unmarried couple as long as it is, it is not a formal liturgical blessing and does not give the impression that the Catholic Church is blessing the union as if it were a marriage, the Vatican Doctrinal Office said. Now, that is Cindy Wooden's summary of the statement that I'm going to read portions of, but I think that it's a fair summary. Yes, Catholic priests can bless same-sex unions, same-sex unmarried couples, I'm sorry, same-sex unions, and other unmarried couples, as long as it's, it's not a formal liturgical blessing. All right? Um, and it does not give the impression that marriage is in a class by itself and is a sacrament that receives the, the, uh, the blessing in its richest or most profound sense of the Church. Okay? Um, the document Fiducia Supplicans, or Supplicating Trust, was subtitled On the Pastoral Meaning of Blessings, and it was approved by Pope Francis. In his introductory note, Cardinal Fernandez said questions about a priest blessing LGBTQ plus or other unmarried couples had been sent to the doctrinal office repeatedly over the past years. Now, just keep in mind that what's in question here is a form of blessing that could be given by Roman Catholic priests to LGBT couples and other couples living in fornication, just to be clear. In his letter, the Pope insisted marriage is an exclusive table, an indestable, rather, an indissoluble union between a man and a woman, naturally open to conceiving children. That's a quotation. And then he goes on to say, which is why the Church, quote, avoids all kinds of rites or sacramentals that could contradict this conviction and imply that it is recognizing as a marriage something that is not. In other words, marriage is in a class by itself, okay? Make no mistake about it. We are holding firm to this conviction that we have about marriage. At the same time, the Pope said, quote, pastoral prudence must adequately discern if, if there are forms of blessing solicited by one or various persons that don't transmit a mistaken concept of marriage. So is it possible to bless certain sexual unions as long as you're not confusing people about the definition of marriage? 
and uh, the Cardinal, and this is jumping back and forth between uh, what the Pope says and what Cardinal Fernandez is saying here, but this is thick with citations. It would just be burdensome to give you all the quotes, but this is the substance of what has been said regarding these kinds of blessing. The Cardinal remains firm on the traditional doctrine of the Church about marriage, not allowing any type of liturgical rite or blessing similar to a liturgical rite that can create confusion. Okay, no confusion here. As long as we're not making the blessing a liturgical rite, then it's okay to bless same-sex unions and people living together, apparently. In fact, this is what it says. It explores the pastoral meaning of blessings in a way that opens the possibility of blessing couples in irregular institutions. By the way, that's the citation from the, the, the from Cardinal Fernandez. The possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations. Is this what they are? This is irregular situation? No, an irregular situation is where a person that's three feet five inches tall marries somebody who's six foot nine inches tall. That's irregular. People living together, cohabiting and sexually involved of the same sex or alternate sexes is not an irregular situation. Oh, gosh. The Church remains firm in the teaching that marriage can be contracted only between one woman and one man, he said, and continues to insist that rites and prayers that could create confusion about a marriage and other form of relationship are inadmissible. Now notice, as long as you're not blessing in a way that makes the blessing look like you're affirming a marriage when there's no marriage there. But this isn't just any old relationship. <laughs> These are sexual relationships that are either heterosexual or homosexual that are outside of marriage. And then part of the justification here, blessings are among the most widespread and evolving sacramentals. Indeed, they lead us to grasp God's presence in all of the events of life and remind us that even in the use of created things, human beings are invited to seek God, to love Him, and to serve Him faithfully, the Declaration said. So that's all from the Declaration. And this is why they go on to explain in the article why people, you know, bless meals and homes and pets and a whole bunch of other things, okay? I just want to make an observation here. Meals and homes and pets and a myriad of other things are blessed because these are morally neutral things. I'm not even sure it's appropriate to do that. I'm not sure what it means to bless bless my pet. God bless my pet. I, I generally, like when Jesus blessed the bread before he broke it, I take the word bless there not to be something that he is conferring onto the bread, but just that it's an act of thanksgiving to God for the bread that they're about to eat. We say the same thing, bless the meal. We're not bringing, you know, some spiritual impact on the food. We are saying thank you to the one who gave us the food. All right. But in any event, these other things, even if they are appropriate, they're morally neutral. They are not sinful relationships. And this is my concern. Now, uh, reading again from the Declaration, from a strictly liturgical point of view, a blessing requires that what is blessed be conformed to God's will, as expressed in the teachings of the Church. All right? But, the new document said, Catholics should uh, avoid the risk of reducing the meaning of blessings to their formal 
liturgical use because that would lead us to expect that the same moral conditions for a simple blessing that are called for in the reception of the sacraments. Now, to me, this is ledger domain. What's that? That's slate of hand. It's verbal slate of hand. However you want to construe this, a blessing is a is in an invocation of favor in some sense or God's favor on this thing. And what's in view here, friends, is not is not an individual who happens to be sinning who is asking for a blessing, but the blessing is on the sinful thing itself, that is the couple's relationship, whether it's a same-sex relationship or whether it's a heterosexual relationship where the individuals are living together in an, shall we say, irregular fashion, though, uh, though not married. And so this puts it in a whole different category. It's not innocent. All right. Um, now, there's more verbal ledger domain here. For example, a person who asks for God's blessing is shows himself to be in need of God's saving presence in his life, and one who asks for a blessing for the church recognizes the, the latter, that is the church, uh, or the uh, as a sacrament of the salvation that God offers. But this isn't a seeking of the salvation that God offers. The Church, it said, should be grateful when people ask for a blessing and should see it as a sign that they know they need God's help. Yes, but they're not asking for God's help in the thing that they are doing that is a direct rebellion against God that they are seeking to be blessed in. Now, I don't know why this is so difficult. Why this requires all of this language to justify. Why can't Rome just say, we cannot bless in any way a relationship that is itself an offense to God. Why can't they just say that? Why all this verbal gymnastics here to kind of provide a justification? Look at this paragraph. When people ask for a blessing, this is in the statement, an exhaustive moral analysis should not be placed as a precondition for conferring it. For those seeking a blessing should not be required to have prior moral perfection. This is an amazing statement because we're not asking for an exhaust, exa, exhaustive moral analysis. What if this couple was an adulterous couple? We love each other. We're having sex with each other, but we're married to other people. Father, will you please bless us? I know it's not the same liturgical blessing as a marriage, it's not sacramental, but we would like God's blessing. Can you do that for us? They would not countenance such a thing. What about blessing an abortion clinic? Would they countenance that? Of course not, I hope. But like I've said in the past about parody, uh, parody is dangerous because what is parody today is reality tomorrow. So um, here's a. This is a good place to ask the question: WWJD? What would Jesus do? And Jesus, for example, didn't say to the woman caught in adultery, 
God bless you. He said, go and sin no more. Why is this difficult? Blessings are not morally neutral. So I don't see how there's any possibility to confer a blessing on sin, per se. Oh, of course you can bless a sinful person. If you couldn't, no one would get blessed, because <laughs> we're all sinful. But this isn't just a matter of a morally flawed individual, which we all are. This is a blessing on a particular, or as they put it, irregular kind of relationship. It isn't just an irregular relationship, friends. So the fact that there's even an attempt here to find some way to confer some kind of blessing on LGBT couples or couples living and cohabiting together outside of marriage is an indication to me that, at least with the Roman Catholic Church, the camel's nose is getting into the tent. In fact, it's not his nose anymore. His whole tent, his, his whole head and shoulders are getting into the tent right now. So just mark this. What this is, this is my take on it. This is an accommodation to culture. This is a way of kind of looking more kinder and gentler as a religion. And I'm just reminded, as I read in Justin Brierley's new book, we had Justin on a month or so ago. We talked about his new book, The Oh, here it goes. The remarkable return or the amazing, the surprising, Justin, you could have chosen different words, right? The surprising return. Amy's helping me. Thank you. I got to write it down somewhere. The surprising rebirth of belief in God, which is the book is magnificent. I hadn't finished it when I did the interview. I went back to it to finish it and told sent uh, Justin a, a note and said, this thing's great. Uh, and you should, but it evidences the culture's shift in many cases, especially atheist types, of realizing that atheism is, and the whole world's way is an empty way. But then there's a warning at the end. One of them is saying, look at Christians, you should stay weird. Don't cease being weird. You're trying too hard to be like us instead of telling us we need to be like you. And that's what's going on here, in my opinion. We're just trying to take the edges off. We're just trying to be kinder and gentler. But you can't be kinder and gentler in a ways that are moral compromises of the truth. There are lots of ways we can be kinder, kinder and gentler, but not this way. And this, surprisingly, coming from in a certain sense, the the most conservative of all religious institutions, morally conservative in terms of doctrine, the Roman Catholic Church. Yet here it is. Now we've 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 talked ourselves into a way that we can legitimately bless, and that's the word that's used same-sex unions and heterosexual unions where there is no marriage, just fornication. 
when I say just fornication, I don't mean there's nothing more to the relationship, but nothing more to the relationship matters to the moral question. You don't bless sinful relationships. That blessing will not alight, I guarantee you, because God doesn't bless sin. All right, let's take a break. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Be back in just a moment. Hey, friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, I got some really good news and kind of bad news for some people. The really good news, of course, is that reality is starting its uh, kind of spring term right now. This is the second half of our reality season. And so we have events coming up in Dallas on February 23rd and 24th in Pennsylvania, March 22nd, 23rd, and excuse me, in Georgia on April 19th and uh, 20th. So that's the good news. What's the bad news? Well, we are, what, like nine weeks or, no, is that about six weeks away from Dallas? And we're more than half full. This this uh, auditorium has been remodeled and expanded in North Dallas, partly to allow for more people. And uh, it holds now 2,400 people in the main auditorium, and we've got 1,700 already signed up, like five or six weeks in advance. It's, 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 uh, what, is that two-thirds? Unbelievable. 700 more to go. So, um, if you haven't signed up for Dallas yet, better get, get at it. Now, there is a overflow of 400, 2,400 in the main sanctuary, but that's 2,800 every single seat counted. And we're going to fill that up. So you can go to realityapologetics.com for all the details, and we hope you sign up. And by the way, if you get squeezed out, this is the event that we live stream. So if you're anywhere else in the country, you can live stream this event. The details are right there at a reality 
apologetics.com. We're a couple of months, month and a half, I'd say, away from uh, Philly. And look at, we got, we have, we're one third full already. And that's a smaller venue at Philly. Holds 1,100 people with 200 overflow. We've got almost 400 people already signed up. So just saying, we'd love to have you there. We want to fill the place completely. But you need to sign up quickly for these events. And this is a fabulous reality. We've already had three of them in the fall. Southern Cal, Seattle, Minneapolis. They were fabulous events. Filled them all up. Basically sold out every one except for, you know, well, we had 3,800 out of 4,000 in Minneapolis. That's pretty much a sellout. <laughs> so I hope you can make it. Also, just a reminder, heads up here, that um, Tim Barnett's new book, co-authored with Elisa Childers, is coming out January 30th. It's been doing really well in pre-orders on Amazon. That's where you can get it. It's called The Deconstruction of Christianity. That was the theme of the 22-23 year reality that we had. And this year, the theme is identity, man or maker, who says who you are. That's what we're doing now. Last year was deconstruction, and uh, Tim and Elisa wrote a book on that and doing real, really well in pre-sales, as I pointed out. You can go to Amazon.com, look up The Deconstruction of Christianity, and uh, order that book. It'll be deliverable on January 30th. We'll probably have Tim on before too long to talk about that book, because it's such an important issue. So many young people are going through a process of deconstruction and deconversion as a result of their deconstruction, and there's just a better way. And Tim and Elisa is talking about that. Okay, with that in mind, let's get to our callers. And we got, is it Yossi? Yeah, Yossi. There you go. Did I say that way? I think every time you call, I ask the same question. Is it Yossi? Uh, uh, Thanks, Greg. Or is it uh, Yossi? Yossi. I'm sorry. Okay. My bad. Quite all right. Yossi. Yo, Yossi. Okay, got it. Just reminding myself. What's up? Well, uh, Greg, Happy New Year. Thank you. just wanted to tell you that you're a big part of uh, you're a big part of the body uh, here in Wichita, Kansas. Oh, fabulous! One of the elders at my church has um, he teaches our catechism class oh. mostly out of the story of reality. Oh, so, uh, well, I'm flattered about that, and I'm glad to hear we, it. Though, thank you. We we love you here, and and mm. he also expects us to know about some '70s detective named Columbo. Uh huh. He's a we're we're fans of yours. Thank you. Uh, Greg, and and the same goes to the STR team. You guys are great. Uh, I'm, I've got a question for you. They're kind of two questions. Mm-hmm. So words mean things, and when someone says that he's a, a Christian, that should mean something. Mm-hmm. And I've recently come into contact with two groups, and they're two people. I, I had interactions with these people, and I don't think they're Christians, but they say they are. Mm-hmm. I would like you to help me with a, a tactical way to say that and to understand it, and because I, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are. Um, so the first person I ran into was a really nice lady. She's, she's a pastor at a, a local... Um, I, I don't re- remember the de- denomination, but mm-hmm. she says she's a Christian pastor... Mm-hmm. And I, I think you could very, very—she claimed the title of progressive Christian. Mm. 
So okay. we had an interesting discussion, you know, and she said, yes, I, I affirm that that God is one being in three persons. Mm-hmm. I affirm the, the person and the work of Christ. Um, she, she, didn't, she said she didn't like the phrase penal substitutionary atonement, mm-hmm. but we didn't get into that very much. It just, Greg, I, I don't think someone is a Christian if that person countenances, um, for, for example, the, the same-sex thing that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. How do we tactically and lovingly draw a distinction between us? Yeah, this is a tough issue, and but it's a practical one because these are people that you know and you're in contact with and you are trying to navigate that relationship with. And um, I um, I have a couple thoughts on it. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to be completely satisfying, but to some degree, I, I don't know that it becomes helpful to tell a person that they're not really a Christian, though they think they are, in any implicit means, to even explicitly or implicitly, to make this kind of claim to them. Because I, I, I just don't think it's going to be helpful, all right? Now, it may be that when you learn more specifically about their views, it may be pretty clear that their views keep them outside the pale, even though they use the name Christian. And this happens with LDS. Um, Latter-day Saints, Mormons, um, identify themselves as Christian, but they are clearly not a subset of classical Christians in the sense that they're one denomination and, say, Presbyterians or or Baptists are other denominations, because they're not under classical Christianity. They're completely outside of it in virtue of their belief system. They don't hold to these common things that make Christianity Christian, but they still think they're Christian because they believe in Jesus. To which I ask, um, do you think that Muslims are Christian. No, of course not. They're Muslim, but they believe in Jesus, which is true. <laughs> you know, they believe in a particular Jesus, the one that's spoken of in the Quran. So this makes the legitimate point that not everybody who says they're Christian actually are Christian. But I think when you're having discussions with them, and I'm going to set LDS aside right now because that's a more extreme example. I mean, it's a clear case right. example of a non-Christian religion, and this was affirmed even by Joseph Smith, okay, just for the record. But when you have those that are broadly within the, 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 the kind of the general category of Christian in our country, and affirming them some of the basic Christian beliefs, but then seem because of other things they believe to be outside of classical Christianity, then it becomes more tricky. And I think the way I would comport myself here, using questions in the tactical Columbo fashion, is uh, is I'd want to know what they mean. Now, and, and it sounds like you've already asked this question. When you say that you're Christian, what is it that you mean? Okay, well, I believe this, this, and this. Now, if she says, I don't believe it, I don't, I'm not comfortable with penal substitution which is a way of characterizing the substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf, which strikes me as essential. Christ, he himself, um, how does it put it in First Peter? Uh, he himself 
took our sins in his body on the cross. All right? That's First Peter, what, chapter 3 or 4. He himself took our sins in his body on the cross. That's pretty straightforward penal substitution. But I know that that's a sore point with a lot of progressive types, and so they're just going to beg off on the language. So if she says, well, I'm not comfortable with that language, I say, okay. I'm, I'm curious, though, what, com- what language are you comfortable with? Did Jesus die for our sins? Yes. What, what, what exactly does that mean? Now, the key here is you want to approach your friend here in a genuinely uh, inquisitive manner. You are trying to decide in your own mind where she actually stands before the Lord. And you are not there to give her a theological test to tell her whether she's a Christian or not a Christian. All right? I mean, that's my view. I don't think that will be helpful. But you are trying to figure things out, and hopefully something about the conversation will get her thinking more carefully about views that she has that may be errant, or even getting her thinking more carefully about whether the word Christian properly applies to her. But you can't do that directly. You've got to do it with questions. And so you you, you could say, well, I, I'm I would con- you consider yourself a Christian, and I consider myself a Christian also, you tell her, but we have very different views, apparently, on some things. I just want to be clear on the differences. Dennis Prager, the, uh, the radio talk show host, the Jewish talk show host, very thoughtful man, frequently says um, with his callers, what I'm looking for is clarity, not necessarily agreement. I think that's a good principle. So when you're talking with your friend, I just want to, you could tell her, I just want to be clear. We don't have to agree, but I just want to be clear. So when you say you believe in the Trinity, okay, I'm just going to take that at face value, but then you believe in the person and the work of Christ. What, what exactly are the person and the work of Christ in your understanding? Now, the person of Christ would be the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. You know, that's the person. What about the work? Well, I'm not comfortable with penal substitution. Okay, what are you comfortable with? What is the work that Jesus accomplished that makes a difference in her life? And you're just open. It's up to her to tell you. You're not, you know, like I said, you're just trying to understand. And then, well, what about what about the? You could ask her about some other issues, about homosexuality, if that's on the table, or or marriage, or sexual issues in general. And so, and then I think it's fair to ask, and this is a way you can put it to make it a little bit more easy for her to countenance your views. If these are your views, and these are Christian views, then it may, it looks like maybe I'm not a Christian, (laughs) because I, I disagree with those views. What do you think? Do you think I'm a Christian? So you could put it in reverse that way, just to see what she says. And the the real question isn't what she what her views or your views are, but what are the biblical views? And if you have a chance to get into that with her, you could ask. You could begin to discuss those kinds of things. Maybe with regard to the cross. And there was that passage I just cited for you out of First Peter. He himself bore our sins 
in his body on the cross. I love that verse because it has a kind of a poetic rhythm to it, and it's crystal clear, it strikes me. Um, but there might be other issues that you go into and say, well, what about if it's homosexuality or sexual issues, then um, where did she get what justification from Scripture is she getting? And just and then you then if it turns out she's got totally contrary views to you, you just might ask her, all right, well, we think very differently, but we both think you're, that we're, we're Christians. How can that be? Do you think I'm a Christian? You might ask her that. So it's not you challenging her whether she's a Christian. It's you're asking her, in light of the differences that are substantial, whether you're whether she thinks you're a Christian. I don't know. There's a that's a tactical maneuver to kind of get to yeah, the heart that, of the matter. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Mm. Thank you. That's that's great. Yeah, just uh, and it and it totally takes the uh, the. Yeah, there's a certain amount of discomfort in saying, no, right. you're wrong. Yes. It, it, it turns around the question, maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Thank well, you. It's, it, it's not so much that. Here's the way I put it. Do you think I'm not a Christian? Right. It, it's not because neither you nor I think that we're wrong. We have our reasons for believing what we do. But instead of saying she's a non-Christian, maybe she, she's obliged, if she thinks her views are consistent with Christianity and they are contrary to yours, then she's obliged to say you're not a Christian. I don't know what she'd say. Because I don't—I mean, you're not admitting to being wrong, but you're just saying—you're just acknowledging we have two different belief systems that both carry the same moniker. How can that be? Right. Okay, so that that's the first one. What's the second? Uh, the second one, I made a friend a few a few months ago. We had a very interesting conversation on eschatology, mm -hmm. and he is, I what I believe is called a full preterist or a hyper preterist. Mm -hmm. He used the phrase covenant eschatology, and I'd never heard that before. No, nor have never, I, not that phrase, although I have heard about the different forms of preterists. Um, right, and so this really, I, I had no way of understanding him. Mm -hmm. My understanding of his beliefs is that uh, Jesus, blessed be he, returned in AD 70. Mm -hmm. That was the second coming. Right. And <laughs> to so which, I, we, we, <laughs> I was just going to say, to which I respond, really? This is it? This yeah, is the yeah. this is the glorious revelation of Jesus, yep. and we are living now in the second coming era. This That's is right. it. We're in the new heavens and new earth. Oh my Welcome. goodness! Now, just for the sake of the other listeners, the preterist, of course, is the past tense, and preterist tense is the past tense. And the idea here, a full preterist holds that all the things that were predicted about the second coming of Christ have fully been fulfilled in the past. Yeah. 70 AD, for example. Now, you can have a partial preterist who thinks that some things were fulfilled that Jesus mentioned on the Olivet Discourse. Some of that was fulfilled in 70 AD, Titus of Rome, fall of Jerusalem, but these were just prefigured a fuller fulfillment in the future when Jesus returns with power and glory and everybody sees blah, blah, blah. So, um, but that, I mean, so there, there are different types of preterists, but this one's a full preterist. But your concern is, is this person a Christian? Right. I, I guess my 
my my question is 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 this person a brother in Christ? Yeah. I mean, he's I'm I'm thinking of this guy. He's he's a wonderful human being. Yeah. But this I mean, I I would look at the historic creeds of the church, you know, it, who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Does he deny that, though, uh, full preterist? Does he, yes. does he say that he denies that? There's, okay. All right, that's curious. Well, I, I asked him, do you believe in the literal, physical, bodily return of Jesus of Nazareth at some point in time in the future? He said, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's what I'd, I'd say about that, just for the sake of time here, um, uh, Yossi. And that is... <clears throat> Uh, I don't think that is a critical article of faith. That, that's just my opinion about this. Okay, I think it's really heterodox. I think it's wrong, mistaken, a distortion of the truth. Paul seemed to have dealt with some people who said that that the that Christ had already come, and that was in Second Thessalonians. He said, "No, it won't come before the apostasy, etc., etc., etc." Now they may have think that those things have already taken place. Okay, um, I think they're mistaken about that, and part of it's it's they're obviously mistaken because this cannot be the blessed hope. What we're living in now cannot be that, you know. But uh, right. nevertheless, a person can be mistaken without being off the reservation, and I would hold this view to be in that category. Now, it may be that there are other things that he holds about Jesus or God or whatever that are off the reservation. I, I don't know, you know, but uh, I wouldn't consider him a non-Christian because he's mistaken about his eschatology. So, um, I mean, that would be my general approach. I would consider him a brother in Christ unless I had a a different reason to think he wasn't other than his mistaken eschatology. Okay. Well, no. that's great. Thank you because I he's a wonderful friend. Okay. All right. Uh I'm glad you called Yossi. I'm sure we'll talk again. I'll try to get your Thanks name right lot, next Greg. time. Okay. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye, buddy. Good luck. Thanks. Bye. All right, let's go to break here, and then we got more calls coming up on Stand to Reason. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. 
Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. So I was just chatting with Amy in the break about a little bit about my opening commentary about the Roman Catholic Church blessing in any sense a uh, same-sex union, same-sex couples as couples, or other type, as they put it, irregular relationships like a heterosexual couple living together. And it just occurred to me, I'm trying to think of clear-case counterexamples, because I think blessing a blessing is 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 conferring um i don't know how you can bless something without conferring approval in some sense upon the thing so when a young man comes and asks his girlfriend's father for his blessing on the marriage he is somehow giving his affirmation to it his approval or his affirmation. So I don't know how you can construe <clears throat> any person of the cloth giving a blessing to a sinful relationship. So here's the clear case counterexample. What about if an abortion doctor came to a priest, in this case, because that's what we're talking about, and the abortion doctor says, Father, I'm an abortionist. I kill babies every single day. Will you please give me your blessing? Is there any blessing for me? You know what? When I just asked that question, I thought of uh, uh, Isaac and um, Esau. And Esau says, Father, is there any blessing for me? Because Jacob got the blessing underhandedly. Is there any blessing for me? And the the only thing that was left for Esau was was not what Esau wanted to hear. But in any event, Esau wasn't living in sin. He just sold his birthright. It was much different. Is there any blessing for an abortionist? Is there a patron saint for abortionists? I know, like, you, that's ridiculous, Coco. Of course it's ridiculous. That's part of my point. You cannot sanitize this. Anyway, I, I digress. I'm back to my my opening comments. Let's go to. Well, we're we going to meet Chattanooga right now. Okay, let's Mike in Chattanooga. Your, your, uh, your line was flashing. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Greg. Um, yeah, I met you last year at the Augusta Reality Conference. Oh yeah. Um, I actually the guy I went to the breakfast there that you guys have. Uh huh. Told you that I'm originally from California. I lived. Uh, 
by Castaic Lake. I don't know if you remember. Oh, that. no kidding. No, I don't remember the specifics, except for I do remember that event, and I do remember Castaic Lake. That produced a 22-pound, .01 ounce <laughs> largemouth bass, which at the time was the second largest one that's ever been caught in history. So, right. uh, yes, Castaic. It is. Yeah, I know you're quite the fisherman, but I'm no longer in Castaic. I'm in Chattanooga, so. Mm-hmm. Um, There's some good fishing there, too. Oh yeah, the Tennessee River, and there's lots of uh, lots of water everywhere. So wonderful, been being removed from the dry California. Oh idea. yeah, yeah. Well, California's still beautiful, though. I mean, we, we've had a little rain, so there's some green now. But I, I just never get tired of it. My son got tired of it, moved to Alaska, and he's very happy there, even though the sun <laughs> doesn't shine for half the year. Any event, what's on your mind today, Mike? So hey, I, you know, I, I, um, I'm an evangelist, and I. And I um, watch a lot of videos and hear these objections a lot from like JWs, the uh, uh, Muslims and and Mormons and such. And one of their common um, objections about the deity of Christ is found in um, Mark thirteen thirty two. Mm-hmm. You know, claiming that um, if Jesus is God, according to you, why doesn't he know the day of his coming? Mm-hmm. And so, um, just curious what your thoughts are. Okay, so now remember the nature of this question. What they're trying to do is show from Scripture that Jesus can't be God because he didn't know the day of his coming. All right? Right. But it is the very same Scripture that we go to that in other places calls Jesus God— uses the characterizations that God has given in the Old Testament, especially around Isaiah 45, which is a whole bunch of verses that the Jehovah's Witnesses camp on. You are my witnesses. I am the first. I am the last. There is no Savior besides me. There is no Creator besides me. And there here's Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Savior and the Creator in the New Testament. Okay, so what what to be fair, you can't go to a passage that seems to indicate that Jesus is not God and use that as evidence against the deity of Christ when massive numbers of Scripture seem to say the exact opposite. I think what is available to them at this point is not a denial, a scriptural denial of the deity of Christ, because that isn't there. The way that Jesus was most commonly referred to in the biblical times, in the gospel accounts—ouch, that kind of hurt—is as Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's not a Lord. He's not a nice guy. He's not a sir. He is the Lord. All right? That, that, uh, that handle, so to speak, itself is an indication of the deity of Christ. Okay, so the best they can do with this observation is say your book has contradictions in it. They can't say that the book is teaching against the deity of Christ, because we have all of these other places that are crystal clear and unequivocal. Now, that doesn't erase this problem, but I just want you first to see the nature of the problem. They can't argue this verse shows that Jesus isn't God when you have a bunch of verses that show that he is. Do you see the point I'm making? Yeah, including the in verse 26 where he says he's uh, he's coming. He's the the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Um, oh yeah, with a reference with uh, 
with power and great glory. Where is it? Is that this is Mark 15, right? I moved the 13. Mark oh, 13. 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That's Mark right. This 13. is the Olivet Discourse. Um, yeah. Okay. And there's there's you know lots of other places that seem to be unequivocal. So if the complaint is going to be raised by the Jehovah's Witness or the Muslim. The complaint needs to be, your word has a contradiction. Now, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses don't want to say that because they believe in the Bible. And by the way, so do the Muslims after a fashion, because the Quran affirms the Gospels. Okay? Right. And so um, they don't, you know, th that puts them in an awkward position if they affirm a contradiction. But it is a fair question to raise, even for Christians. If Jesus is God, come down, how is it that he doesn't know certain things? Okay, and the answer is, is in the nature of the Incarnation. Jesus isn't just God. Jesus is also a human being. Okay, he is fully human and fully divine. Classical Christianity teaches that Jesus has two natures. He's 100% God, he's 100% man, and uh, one person with two natures. That's the Chalcedonian formula, or also called the Chalcedonian box. Fully God, fully man, and on opposite sides of the box, then one person, two natures, and the other opposite sides of the box, okay? <clears throat> now, um, what I'm attempting to do is to demonstrate that in Christianity there's a very specific understanding of Christology that allows us to understand why Jesus could be God and still not know something. And that's because he has two natures. And sometimes what we see in Scripture is a reference to his human nature, and sometimes we see a reference to his divine nature. So in, say, Philippians chapter 2, it says there's a passage seized out of the Old Testament. I think this is close to Isaiah 45, right in there somewhere. You can look at your cross-reference in Philippians chapter 2. And, and the text says that every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. Now that verse is taken out of the Old Testament, and it's exactly the same except for the individual who is Lord. The Old Testament, it says Yahweh, or Jehovah, is Lord, and here it says Jesus is Lord. Same verse. Okay, so this is identifying Jesus with Jehovah. Is that Jesus who was born on Christmas morn? No, God wasn't born. His divine nature is eternal. It was his human nature that had a birth. Okay, so when we hear about Jesus being born, we're not talking to his, about his divine nature but rather is human nature. When it says Jesus was tired, does God get tired? No. Then it's not referring to Jesus in his divine nature, it's referring to his human nature. Okay? So because Jesus is both God and man, the text is going to be referring to him, sometimes with regards to his divinity, I and the Father are one, before Abraham was, I am, Emmanuel, God with us, etc., etc. Sometimes it will be referring with regards to his humanity. 
And Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his ministry. Is that Jesus the God? No, that's Jesus the man. And he slept, and he wept, and he was tired, and he ate. God doesn't have to eat, but Jesus had to eat because he was a human being. Okay, so that you see those distinctions now, right, so far? Yes. Yep. Okay. And what this leaves us with now, and i got 30 seconds, is it leaves us with a Jesus somehow in his humanity that doesn't know everything that his divine nature knows. Let me say it again. Jesus' humanity, in his humanity, he doesn't know everything that his divine nature knows. Now, how does that work? Nobody knows. Right. But it's because not. He, he could obviously perform uh, signs and wonders, uh, you know, expressing or showing, demonstrating the power that he is deity, and yet on some things he doesn't know. Exactly, so. exactly. It, it, it's odd, no question. It is not a contradiction. There's a way of showing that this makes sense. Therefore, that verse in Mark 13 is not in conflict with all the other verses that I've identified as being verses that support the deity of Christ. There you go. It's not a contradiction, and it's not inconsistent with the divinity of Christ. The Bible teaches Jesus was God in human form. All right. Thanks for the call, Mike. That's it for us for this hour, friends. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. You give them heaven, please. Bye-bye now.